It's good to see everyone. So I am coming to you from the exact same position I was last year at this time uh, with the opening of deer season being 10 days old, covered in chigger bites and mosquito bites. I am not going to itch in front of you, uh, but I really, really want to. Um, for those of you in Fairfield County, uh, we'll see you in October. I know y'all got to wait a little bit. I, I did learn, in seminary, I learned an interesting term called progressive sanctification, and it's a fancy term for, like, get better as you, like, progress through your walk with Christ. And I think I had my first moment of that on Monday when I was in the stand, and a wolf spider fell out of the tree and landed on my shoulder. And if you know me, I have an irrational fear of pretty much every insect the good Lord created, especially those that fly. And I, this... This is all I said. I said, no, 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 no. Which years ago, it would have been a much more colorful presentation, uh, one that I would have had to likely repent of. So uh, anyway, um, many of you know I have a twin brother. I know him by no other title than brother. Uh, we have a bond that is, what I can gather, relatively uncommon. It's very, very strong between the two of us. We've been through a lot together. We've been through deployments together and, and deaths in the family together. And I love him. I always back my brother. I love that guy. Um, now, growing up, we had two great uncles. I had Uncle Raleigh, who lived in a, on a farm in the town of Olana, South Carolina, and Uncle Carl, who lived in Albuquerque, New Mexico, after retiring from the Air Force. And just a side note, Olanta is not Atlanta, so imagine my disappointment thinking I was gonna meet Dale Murphy, my childhood hero, on my first visit, and all I saw was tobacco. So anyway, uh, Uncle Carl and Uncle Raleigh. And I think that those two thought it was really awesome having twins in the family. And um, they had big plans for my brother and I. Now you may wanna know what these big plans were. Well, it was the WWF is what they, what they thought. And um, wrestling, or wrestling as we say down here. And so that's what our future was looking like at an early age. Um, it gets better though. Um, they thought my name was Phil. Uh, my name is Jay, obviously, uh, Will and Jay. But um, apparently, no matter how many times my dear sweet mother corrected them, I was always gonna be Phil. And so on that Christmas Day in 1985, Uncle Carl had sent a package uh, to the house for our wrestling t-shirts. And so we were all excited. We, we had an idea these may be coming. We unboxed them. And guess what mine said? Phil. And you know what? I remember even at five years old being just slightly annoyed at that. And not because it wasn't my name. Because you know, I thought my name, you know, my name meant something. And you know, I assumed that my mother and father, when they you know, decided on our names, they had you know, talked at length about it and maybe, you know, maybe prayed about it. And yet somebody here completely disregarded my name. And not only did they use it incorrectly, they used a completely different name. So you may wonder how all this ties into the sermon this morning. Well, it should hopefully get obvious here when we start looking at the third commandment found in Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, as we continue in our study of the book, Ten Words to Live By. So the title of this sermon follows the, the title of this chapter in the book, which is Untarnished Name. 
And before we get into the scripture here, I want to do a bit of a review about the law. And in particular, the Ten Commandments, which may also be referred to as the Decalogue. And sometimes you'll hear it referred to as the moral law. And so for review, remember where the Israelites were at this time. So they had been in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. And here they are at the base of Mount Sinai, probably around 50 days after the Exodus. And if you remember, you know, they hear the Ten Commandments. And if you remember, it, it terrifies them. They actually tell Moses, um, hey, from here on out, you talk to God. You bring that back to us. Um, in fact, even in verse 18 is what they say. And if we hear from him again directly, we think we're going to die. So that's how powerful this is. So in, in giving of the Ten Commandments, so what's the first thing that the Lord does? First thing he does is he says who he is. See, he says, I am the Lord your God. Next, he tells them what he's done. He says, I brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And if, if you've been a part of our Bible studies, this is why Andrew asked these questions. This is how we attack every Bible verse. Who is God? What has he done? Who are we? What are we supposed to do? From this very same thought process. So again, who is God? What has he done? He is. Who is he? I am. He says, I am. And we look at the Ten Commandments. The first four commandments deal with Israel's relationship with God. Sometimes you see it called the vertical commandments. The next six are how Israel deals with its people. So the horizontal ones. And so this law, this law is what we have here in the Old Testament. As mentioned in previous sermons, is about just over 600 laws in addition to the Ten Commandments. So our enemy is ever subtle. And John Davis brought that up in a, a Bible study two weeks ago. And, and I agree completely. If there's one word we can describe the enemy with, I would choose subtle. And in that same thought process, the secular world, the, the supposed scholars of the day are going to tell us that the Old Testament law that we have and that we read about is just borrowed or adapted from the Code of Hammurabi, which is uh, 1800 B.C., uh, the King of Babylon at the time published laws that, that read, uh, maybe 200 of them, they sound similar to some of the laws that we see in the Old Testament. I think we have a picture of the Code. It's interesting, I, I'm, a, I'm a nerd at heart, and uh, they found this in 1902 in present-day Iran, I think it resides in the Louvre right now. But um, again, so the laws are, are, are you're going to see similarities between these. You're going to see similarities in not only the laws, but in the penalties and the situations, and especially in the writing style. And for the life of me, I've never understood why this causes uh, confusion because the law, as it was revealed to the Israelites, was revealed to the Israelites in a way that they could understand in a legal jargon, in a legal speak. So the code is written the same way all ancient Near East legal documents were written, and that is why they sound the same, because they're supposed to sound the same. But, but the difference, and this is what we have to focus on, the difference is this. The Code of Hammurabi focuses on justice, justice alone, nothing else. The law that we have from our Creator not only focuses on that, but its goal is to make us more like Him, to show His character, to show the stark difference between us and the world. And also in, in the code of Hammurabi, 
the punishments vary greatly depending on your economic status and depending on your social status. Whereas the Mosaic Law is overwhelmingly blind uh, to all that. And again, sorry for the nerd out there, but 1 Peter 3.15 tells us always be prepared to give a defense. So let's go ahead and jump into the uh, scripture this morning and get started. We're going to be looking at the third commandment, again, coinciding with chapter 3 of 10 words to live by. And from Exodus chapter 20, let's read verses 1 through 7. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall, know, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to the thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So we can't fully grasp this command. We can't fully grasp the third commandment until we first understand the importance of a name. Until we understand the importance of the name above all names is our first point this morning is titled. And the first part about understanding this command is to fully understand this name. In this culture, in the ancient Near East culture at that time, names meant things. In our time today, not, not as much. And if you're follow along, following along in the book, the, the author jokingly refers to the Jennifer epidemic uh, in the 80s and 90s when you know, the majority of girl babies were named Jennifer. Um, and it's the same for us. And so our, our names uh, usually don't have that same importance that they did back then unless you go to Myrtle Beach and research your coat of arms and find out that your name means valiant warrior or like wise king, or whatever they sell in those things. You know, everybody's got the coffee cup, and you know. Anyway, so sometimes we select even today, not only on that, but um, yeah, if you want to honor a relative, or some people just like the name. Yeah, I think of you know my children's names, and that's pretty much the thought process there. Uh, but not back then. So I want you to understand that not back then they meant things. And for example, Yahweh. Yahweh meant I am. Moses to draw out. Jesus, Savior, Peter, Rock, Daniel, God is my judge, Isaiah, the salvation of God, Michael, who is like God. So you see, these names meant things. And using someone's name in this culture implied acting on their authority. And so when we use somebody's name, we're, we're using their authority, their experience, their qualifications. If you look in your wallet and you see your driver's license, we may, all of us have the name of our governor on there, uh, indicating he has the authority to grant the qualifications and he has done such. In the eyes of our government, a pastor or a judge can legally marry individuals, and so they're using their, they're using their name to validate that legal union. Our, our degrees and our diplomas are signed by principals and presidents of college, colleges, um, granting us those qualifications based on their position. But now think about this when we, when we pray, and when, when we pray in the name of Jesus, 
there's similarities here, but how much more powerful is it praying in that name? Here's a quote from David Mathis, and it says this, When we Christians pray in Jesus' name, we don't invoke some kind of magic spell or incantation that makes our prayers effective. In Jesus' name is no mere tagline added at the end of our prayers to make them Christian. We pray in Jesus' name because he's our brother, our fellow human, our fellow sufferer, our sacrifice and substitute, and our pioneer into the presence of God. And we pray in Jesus' name because he is our great high priest who alone brings us to God and will most certainly do so for all eternity. Praying in Jesus' name is not about merely saying words. It's about why and how we pray all together and why and how we have any relationship with God whatsoever. Think about when Andrew baptizes folks. He doesn't baptize folks in the name of our church. He doesn't baptize folks in the name of Andrew Tate. He baptizes folks in the name of our triune God, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, the name that has the authority behind it, the authority to conduct the baptism, the name that is above all names. C.S. Lewis said this about his name in the book, The Problem of Pain. He said, there was a man born among these Jews who claimed to be or to be the son of or to be one with the something which is at once the awful honor of nature and the giver of the moral law. The claim is so shocking, a paradox, and even a horror which we may be easily lulled into taking too lightly that only two views of this man are possible. Either he was a raving lunatic of an unusually abominable type, or else he was and is precisely what he said. There's no middle. There's no middle way. And if the records make the first hypothesis unacceptable, you must submit to the second. And I believe the records have consistently and continuously made the first hypothesis unacceptable. Remember in the Old Testament, remember in, in Exodus when, when God asked, or when Moses asked God, what did the people ask me, what is his name? One of the most striking parts of Scripture. And how does God respond? He says, I am. He says, I am. I am who I am. I am what I am. I will be what I will be. He says, tell them I am has sent me to you. Tell them the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this is why his name is above all names. It is, it was, and it will be. God is the essence of all things. He is the essence of everything. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And then in the apocalyptic literature from the book of Revelation, we see this about his name. From chapter 19, verse 11, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven and raid and fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, which was to strike down nations, 
and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread on the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now that we understand this importance, I think the importance here is clear. We should be much more serious about the sin involved in the third commandment, which is the sin of misuse. And we misuse this in three ways, through inconsistency, through misattribution, and through hypocrisy. So to to start off first, let's look at the sin of inconsistency as it relates to how we misuse the Lord's name. So first, vain. What is vain? Webster says, having no real value or significance. Worthless, empty, idle, hollow. And in the scripture, God says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And at first glance, that seems pretty straightforward, doesn't it? Doesn't seem too difficult. It makes sense. I think we can probably argue over how tough it is to uphold that, but we can all, you know, pretty much agree on what that entails. You know, don't curse using the Lord's name. Got it. But if you're following along in the book, Jen Wilkin does a good job of covering how, though, we actually misuse it here, because we already talked about the importance of His name, and she says His name essentially being the sum total of His character. So we're commanded not to take the name of the Lord in vain. And so it looks like it's more than just don't curse using his name. And so if we go back to the original Hebrew, the word used is shav. And and our English definition is fine, but it adds this with the word shav. Uselessness, false, destructive, and evil. All from the word shav, meaning vain. So all these ways we use his name are counter to who he is. It's counter to his nature, to his being, to his essence, all that he is. The Bible is telling us here, don't use his name carelessly. Don't use his name under false pretenses. Don't use his name to validate the unimportant. But we do it. We do it a lot, and we do it in in many different ways. David Guzik lists three ways, which we'll talk about two here. The first, profanity. And I think what he's saying is all profanity in which his name is used. The second, and this is perhaps more difficult and likely kind of at the center of what we're trying to drill into this morning, is the, the sin of inconsistency being frivolous with his name, or as Guzik says, using the name of God in a superficial, stupid way. That, that you know, makes a lot more sense. When we call on God to attest to our reason for being late to work, when we call on him to validate our account of a dramatic story, this is what we're getting at. When we're calling on the almighty creator God of heaven and earth, and using him as a hype man, we're being very, very reckless. We're being disrespectful. We are sinning. And this is serious, just as he tells us that it is. This quote comes from Kyle Butt. I wasn't going to use him because of his last name. And I may be 43 years old, but mentally I think I'm closer to 14 but this quote is from Kyle, but it was too good of a quote not to pass up, so forgive me for that. 
So he says this, Thus, God was instructing the Israelites to avoid using his name in a useless, disrespectful way. Instead, the Israelites were supposed to revere the name of God and use it in a serious, considerate way. Many of the ancient Israelites were so respectful of the name of God, they would not even pronounce it or write it for fear of using it in vain. Those who did write it would often throw away the quill they had used because they thought any quill that had written God's name was holy and should not be used for regular words. So the author goes on in that article to say what we know, whether it's the the name Lord, whether it's the name God, it applies to all careless use, inconsistent use, flippant use, and casual conversation. The name of God, the name above all names, is not to be used inconsistently, but consistently in praise and worship and reverence. The next sin of misuse we see is the sin of misattribution. So this one is common throughout the ages. You may have heard it referred to as playing the God card. And I warn you, this one is going to hit close to home because I think a lot of us, if we're being honest, will probably recognize times in our lives where we've used this one. Throughout history, the God card has been played. In the book we're reading, the author mentions slavery being justified through this sin, as well as the Crusades. Um, I think there's a lot to study about the Crusades, but, but I certainly, uh, with slavery, absolutely this one was used. Um, hey, where, we're our, where we are right now, we're getting ready and we're on the doorstep of being inundated with a storm of political ads. It's the season, it's coming, uh, you know it as well as I do, we're going to see this. And we're going to see this on these commercials, we're going to see these candidates in, a, in an attempt to promote themselves to a position of power and influence, they're going to use the holy name of our creator to validate their campaigns. We are going to see power-hungry people that will stop at absolutely nothing to get elected. Absolutely nothing. And these people are lost. They are lost, and they don't even know they're lost because they're blinded by power and blinded by greed and blinded by arrogance. And in the season, we have to pray for this. As far as playing the so-called God card, I read an interesting article about it, pretty convicting. And so this author gives four reasons why we are prone to play this card. And these four reasons are this. One, isolation. Listen, bad theology, bad theology grows in isolation. And that's why we're called as believers to gather together. That's why we we do Bible studies. We are to do this in community. Again, bad theology grows in isolation. Second, inherited vocabulary. Inherited vocabulary. Point being that if you're using it so frequently, it is now absent of any substance or absent of any truth. It's become so part of your personal lexicon, it means absolutely nothing anymore. The next is avoiding accountability. Essentially, this being the trump card you play when anyone disagrees with you. You ever been on that? You know, hey, I don't think you should have done this this way. Well, you know, the Lord laid it on my heart. Yeah, well done. Good. Yeah, your move, sport. Yeah. Not a lot to come back from, uh, from that one, right? Um, the, the, the final one being fear of failure. Fear of failure, needing clarity and approval for every decision you make. And at this point, you've turned the creator into your PR agent. 
you know, that, that book that Andrew gives to the graduates um, is awesome. The book, Just Do Something, uh, which I think kind of gets to this point. And then the author of these uh, points makes this quote. But it's, he says, it's freeing to know you don't have to muster a God told me so for every decision. Instead, you can root yourself in scripture, then take risk, make decision, and pray your guts out on the unknown. But to flippantly co-op God's name to endorse your every whim, risk putting words in God's mouth. And that is not a risk worth taking. And he goes on to say, God's word is the clearest revelation of God's will. And much time can be lost panning for spiritual gold when he's laid cartloads of precious ore in our hands already. And then finally, from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 21, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. The final sin of misuse this morning is the sin of hypocrisy. And that's a tough one. And I mean, it's a tough one for all of us. I think in the book, Jen Wilkin refers to this as the sin of lip service. Um, I felt hypocrisy uh, worked better because I wasn't 100% sure what lip service was. So um, hypocrisy is what I do know. Uh, so we have all been accused of hypocrisy. And if you think you haven't, you have because you're here. And collectively, the entire church has been repeatedly accused of hypocrisy over the years. How many times have you heard, you heard the comment, I don't go to church anymore because it's full of hypocrites? For the record, I love to respond with, well, we can always use another one. We, have, we do have empty seats. So hypocrisy, though, it comes in two forms. And the two forms are this. By the way, it comes from a Greek word that means play acting, which is perfect. But the two forms are this, acting in a way counter to what you claim to believe and looking down on others for your flaws while ignoring your own. Pretty clear. And what we see in the third commandment relates a little bit more to that first definition. But it, you know, as for the latter, and kind of a side note, one of my favorite movies of all time is the movie Tombstone. Great movie. Val Kilmer did a solid job of Doc Holliday, uh, you know, one of the best ever. But at the end of the movie, you have Doc Holliday lying in a hospital, a Catholic hospital, dying of tuberculosis after a life filled with gambling and drinking and gunfighting. And a priest is there, and he's administering the last rites. Wyatt Earp is there. And Doc looks over at him and makes the famous statement, it appears my hypocrisy knows no bounds. And I, th I think that quote, not only is it awesome, he had so many, Doc Holliday is just full of awesome quotes. It's interesting because this is what we're referring to here, living a life counter to what we claim to believe. And for Holiday, he had lived a life of excess. He had lived a life full of excess. And he had lived a life on his own. But at the end on his own didn't work. And so he, he's seeking answers. He was an intelligent man by all accounts. He was a dentist by trade. But at the end of his life, he's seeking answers and he recognizes that he's come up short, that he doesn't have the answers. After living a life centered on him and his talents, he now sees that they're not enough. The world did not provide what he was seeking. And so this third sin, this sin of misuse, this sin of hypocrisy is everywhere. So we've talked about 
the importance of the weight of the name of our Lord. We've talked about how we can profane it and how we can sin against it for our own purposes. We've talked about how we can use it carelessly. We've talked about how we can use it frivolously. But when we live our lives in direct opposition to what we claim to believe, this is hypocrisy and this violates the third commandment. This is taking the Lord's name in vain. When we find joy in idols, when we find joy in excess, over the joy provided by Christ, as Christians, we're violating this commandment. We are committing this sin. When we fail to recognize where our hope comes from, when we fail to recognize where our hope comes from, we're committing this sin. When we, when we put our faith in our hope and our trust and our adoration into an elected group of mortals, when we idolize that elected group of mortals, we're taking the name of our God in vain. We are putting them in the place of God. And I want to look at that again. As professing Christians, as believers, when we constantly grumble about the state of our nation, the state of the government, the state of the world, the Democrats, the Republicans, when we become known by that, we're taking the name of our Lord in vain. Please hear me on this. We have to be known. We have to be known by the joy that we have within us the joy of the gospel of Jesus Christ and not the ever-changing tide of society and the ever-changing tide of politics. Be convicted of this, especially as we approach this season. As Christians, we have a duty to participate in our elections. We have a duty to participate in our government, and it is perfectly fine to be disappointed in the state of it. It is perfectly fine to have righteous anger at the current state of our government, but what we can't do is we cannot diminish the hope that we have within us as followers of Jesus Christ, because we, if we exist like that, if we exist in this constant state of anger and sadness over where our country is, and we claim to be a Christian, what message does that send? When we spend hours a day glued to a news network, listening to piece after piece on the downfall of this country, on the downfall of the world, on the downfall of America, hey, we are no different than a non-believer at that point. We are no different. And that is a sad, sad state of affairs for the church, for those who claim Christ is Lord. Listen, God put us here for this very time. God wanted you here for this very time, and he is not surprised by what's happening in our government, by what's happening in the world. From Esther chapter 4, verse 14, For if you keep silent at this time, Relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. We are called to live in stark contrast 
to the world. We're called to live in stark contrast to the culture of the world. Just as God gave the law to the Israelites so that they could live in stark contrast to the pagans, we live counterculture. We are called to live this way. We're counter to the idea that joy and happiness and hope is found in men. We believe we're loved by a creator, a creator God on a personal level. No other religion says this. No other religion comes close to this. Our creator desires a personal relationship with us. He loves us so terribly much, he was willing to send the son to experience his wrath. His wrath, his separation, his judgment, his punishment. He was willing to send a spotless, pure lamb for a brutal sacrifice so that you and I can be reconciled to him and so that you and I can live eternally with him. Church, that is the hope. That is, that's the hope that we live with. That is the hope we live with. Paul says this in Romans. He says, And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes with what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. That's it. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so in the words of Francis Schaeffer, how should we then live? So the Ten Commandments are convicting. They're, they're quite convicting. And I think sometimes you go through a study on, on these. You, you go through a series on this. And you can tend to think, wow, I, I am never going to be able to do this. I'm never going to be able to uphold these. Especially if you look at what our Savior says about murder and adultery. He says, if you ever had hate in your heart toward another man, you're guilty of murder. If you've ever looked on somebody with lust, you're guilty of adultery. You, you hear this and you, and you feel like you're never going to be able to make the grade. And I am here to tell you that is true. That is 100% true. We can't live up to them. We are always going to fail at this. And church, that is the point. Because the law here is a mirror. The Ten Commandments are a mirror so we can see how ugly and distorted by sin, how affected by sin we are. Again, from, from the problem of pain, C.S. Lewis says, I've been trying to make the reader believe that we actually are at present creatures whose character must be, in some respects, a horror to God. As it is when we really see it a horror to ourselves. This I believe to be a fact, and I notice that the holier a man is, the more fully aware he is of that fact. Now, does this mean we need to walk through life in a constant state of guilt and fear? No. What it means is we should be grateful. Grace is the strongest when we realize thoroughly how much we don't deserve it. Grace and mercy, knowing that we're so loved, we've been provided a way out. Knowing that there is a way. There is a way, and it is the way. Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. 
And this brings us to the absolute beauty of the, of the law. And why we're told to delight in the law. Because in the law and through the law, we see the power of grace. We see the power of mercy. We see the power of Christ's love for us. And we see the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because a changed heart, listen to me, a changed heart cannot overlook and a changed heart cannot overstate that beauty. We see our sin, we see the ugliness of ourselves throughout the law, but we have the gospel. We have the good news. We have the gospel so that we can walk through this world in it, but not of it, knowing that we're so very loved by him, so very loved by him that we're forgiven. So the law isn't meant to magnify our guilt. The law is meant to magnify our need for a savior. It's to help us to understand that we can't do it on our own. We cannot do it on our own. Satan, on our own, Satan is too clever. He is too subtle. He is too powerful. On our own, we cannot defeat that power we can't resist that temptation. We can't beat that addiction. We can't overcome that mental illness. We can't heal that marriage. We can't give that forgiveness. We can't shut the gates of hell on our own. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. With him, with him we can't make Satan small enough. Our all-present, all-knowing, all-powerful God through his son, Jesus Christ, has defeated him and he has defeated death. Through him, in him, and through him is where we find redemption. So if you haven't experienced that, and if you don't know what this means, if any of this is confusing, we are here to help. If you have questions or doubts or concerns, please don't sit on them. The gospel is here now. The gospel is here now and all you have to do is accept. But if you're here today and you are a believer, walk through this life with the joy that the gospel of Jesus Christ brings. Walk through this life free from the burden of your sins. Free from the burden of your sins, past, present, and future. Walk through this life knowing that the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Alpha, the Omega, the Great I Am has redeemed you. Think about that. Think about his love for you. An all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present creator thinks so much of you that even in your brokenness, he sent one that knew no sin to take your place. He sent the Lamb, the purely innocent, to take that punishment for you. Now, if you haven't, if you haven't put your faith and trust and hope in him, if you don't understand that peace that surpasses all understanding, if you don't know what to do with the shame and the guilt you've been carrying your whole life, if you feel like you're too broken and you're too addicted, you're too hopeless, hear this now. There is good news. Jesus Christ did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world from condemnation he died for you he died for you and he died for me and your sins no matter how awful 
no matter how shameful, no matter how dark and how dirty, can be forgiven. You can drop it here today. You can drop it here today at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. Listen to me on that. You cannot out the gospel of Jesus Christ. Come to him now. He is here and he is waiting. Let us pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for always being there for us, Father. Thank you for this church, this family of believers that are gathered here in your name. Father, there are those among us today that are hurting and suffering. And Father, we don't know why. We don't know why, but we do know you. And we know that you love us. So help us, please, Father, to walk through this life with the joy and the peace that you provide, knowing that we can walk and show the world your beauty and your glory. Father, thank you for this law. We ask that you help us to delight in it, Father, that we help us to use this law to see your grace and to see your mercy. Father, thank you for the way out. Thank you for that lamb in our place. Thank you for Jesus, and we pray in his mighty name. Amen.